the whole idea in my lineage and in my personal exploration is that you can do the most mundane things as the most sacred activity. And in order to do that, you have to have uh, a, a strong practice or imprint of that devotional disposition so you can step up to a, you know, a dish full, a, a sink full of dishes and wash the dishes as a, as a devotional offering or, um, you know, pick up the dog shit or <laughs> anything else that you wouldn't ordinarily call sacred. Because when you look at how much of our life there is and how little of it is sacred, there's a large gap that can be filled with the, with the disposition of the devotional activity. And so that's really the underpinning of a lot of the lineage practices, the devotional disposition through the movements of your body so that you can make absolutely everything a divine um, you know, oriented activity or a sacred activity. So to me personally, intuition is essentially, there's nothing magical about it at all, right? Intuition is something that every human being has, amply so. We were just talking a little bit earlier about, uh, you know, tarot card readers and things like that. You don't actually need anybody to do that for you because it's the very thing that's kept humanity alive for long periods of time, millions of years, literally. Because right? um, your body and the, the genius of your body is that you have distinctions that are much finer than your regular um, thinking perception. And those distinctions can be trained. And the more you are living, let's say, in a natural environment, let's say you would live in a jungle, um, a lot of what you would be perceiving if you live in a jungle would be non-thinking, non-verbal even, but there would be fine distinctions. You'd be able to distinguish the sound of one bird from another or the footstep of a rodent from the footstep of a you know, predator, you know, different snakes, you'd be able to have all those distinctions and they would be nonverbal distinctions. They would eventually, potentially, become cognitive and verbal so you can act, but not even necessarily. So that said, our intuition is essentially trained by um, getting as many distinctions as you can. So in the book, I talk about wine tasting. If you've ever had anybody teach you how to taste wine, essentially in the beginning, you take a you know, sip of wine and you can go, well, I like this one or I don't. But then when somebody teaches you, they can say, well, roll it over the tongue in the very back. Okay, just keep it there. Or, or, you know, they make you suck it in and do all kinds of weird shit. And then they say, okay, when you do that, can you taste a woodsy taste to it? And then you do the, you know, and then you go, oh, yeah, that has like an oak taste to it. And it's like, yes, that's the barrel it was aged in. So you can taste that back there. Now roll it in the middle of your tongue. Can you feel a fruit, right, and so on and so on. So over a, a short period of time, even if you're not particularly talented, you can learn the distinctions of wine and eventually 
uh, most people can go, oh, this is a Bordeaux, this is a Merlot, blah, blah, blah. And if you're really good at it, you can even tell the year and the actual vintage and the area it came from. Because you can train per perception, and that's what intuition training is all about, is uh, gathering as many data points as you can and cataloging them both in your conscious and in your subconscious mind so that when the time comes, you have, um, instead of like five things you can notice, 50 things you can notice. So that's one aspect of uh, intuition training is that you add as many data perceptors to your system. So one way you do that is by sensitizing yourself so that you're aware of more, right? That's one way. Relaxing yourself so that the, the inflow isn't clenched by tension so that you can actually perceive more. In addition to that, to the sensitizing and the relaxing, you then cognitively go back and qualify things that weren't that were there but you couldn't translate so what that means are you following me still okay good so what that means is you have a conversation with someone right and you leave and you have a it's, you don't feel good it's just you don't feel good. And then, you know, you get over it and you forget and whatever. And then, you know, three weeks later, you find out on Facebook, whatever, that they stole an entire chapter of your book and made it their own or something like that, right? Um, happens all the time. And, um, you know, recorded your newest findings or whatever and published them as their own, whatever you want to say. And then you can go, you, you know, everything in you goes, I knew it. I knew something was wrong. So in that moment, what you do is you go back and you, as much as you can, feel where in your body felt something wrong. And then you catalog that as a somatic uh, reference to what happened. So let's say it sits right here, right? You had this weird feeling here, and then it equates to somebody having taken from you. Well, next time you feel this, hopefully you can go, uh-oh, there's the feeling. What are you doing, right? And then over time, you can equate certain sensations in the body with certain actions that people or yourself take. And then that becomes intuition over time because then you see somebody and before they even speak with you, that area lights up and your mind goes, ah, thief, right? Or whatever, crazy, crazy abusive man or, you know, name it. Don't fuck him, right? Eventually a big red sign shows up in your head that says, don't fuck him, right? And then you know you're good because you've essentially trained your perception to notice things that you didn't notice before. Don't fuck him is a good example, right? Because uh, biology dictates different fuck mechanisms, so to speak, than intuition 
dictates being careful uh, of being had, so to speak. Right. So the only way that you can train for perceiving if a man is good for you or not, for instance, is in hindsight. Exactly. You have to fuck up a few times and then go, Oof, okay, I knew it. How did I know it? Oh, this is what happened. This is what happened. And then you see the red flags and you feel the things in your body. And eventually, you know, a guy can walk by down there on the street and you know exactly what he's about. And then you have to just have the emotional maturity to not go there anyway. But that's a different story. (laughs) So that's, that's a bit more detail on the intuition piece. You have to gather data points, as many as you can. And then in addition to that, you have to backtrack and correlate somatic feelings and also thoughts and emotions with hindsight. And over time, you'll notice this is a very subtle thing, but over time you can learn to distinguish. Because, see, you're absolutely right. Let's say a guy who cheats, right? Like you know you're with a man and you've been cheated on before. Right, so you have patterns there, and maybe you know your father cheated on your mother, so you have familial patterns there. So he does one thing, and you are already you know down the road of what a dog he is, right, and and how he's lied to you and whatever. Well, he might not have at all, and you know, or he might have. Well, how do you know? Well, you do the distinctions, you gather the data points, you don't do anything till you have data points. And then over time, you can subtly feel that the feeling of you um, anticipating betrayal has an energy suck to it. While the actual reading of the energetic imprint, so to speak, is pretty neutral. And that's how you can usually tell over time as you get more subtly aware of things. That um, your own shit typically comes with a a loss of energy. You get tired, sleepy, depressed, uh, you know, anxious, that kind of stuff. While the other stuff is neutral or even has a positive energy effect. You, you usually have more energy in a correct reading, so to speak, than in a paranoid moment. No. And also, usually, in a paranoid moment, you start having these repetitive cycling thoughts, while when it's a non-paranoid moment, it usually has a spike and then it subsides. No. It might have lots of spikes, but usually comes and it goes, while... The paranoid moments cycle. Yeah. Those are some of the things to play with. How to cool down the paranoid moments? Keep your mouth shut and step away. That's the only way, right? You have to discipline yourself to not go there when you are itchy, so to speak, right? which is really, 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 really hard. That, that takes a lot of discipline. Because while you're paranoid or while you're activated or triggered, however you want to call it, even if it's true that you don't have enough distinctions to figure it out, you're clenched and, and it's much better to discipline yourself, step away, relax the body, sensitize, and then you can get like really fine distinctions. I once had a thing happen that was so bizarre 
where uh, somewhere I worked, um, the man I worked with, I, I ran a rehab with someone, and that person resigned out of nowhere. And we were quite close and, uh, you know, had a really great relationship. And there was nothing happening externally that would warrant him resigning. And then he kind of disappeared off the radar. And it was a bit of a puzzle. Nobody knew what had happened. And he was the, he was the treating uh, clinical um, leader of the team and all of that. And it was really, really strange. And I was quite upset because it left the entire burden of the treatment team with me, which was a lot. Uh, and um, I remember being quite upset and then going home and like turning it over in my mind and then going, ah, fuck it, you know, whatever. And going to bed and I woke up in the morning and I got up and I was still thinking about it but I was relaxed and I had somewhat left the hurt of the you know, super high workload behind. And out of, you know, I'm, high, I'm hyper visual, so this is not true for everyone. Other people process information. But I had a, a memory, a visual memory of something that showed up like a movie and was super detailed. And I went, oh. And so from that visual memory backwards, I could figure out exactly what had happened and how it had happened and why he had quit. So then I called him and I said, is this what happened? And he could not believe it because I had essentially backwards narrated from that visual that my subconscious mind had produced an entire narrative over a six-month period that I could track based on the fact that I wasn't so reacted. So you ha kind of have to step away and give it some time. And then your subconscious mind, if you have enough distinctions, will produce the results quite substantially. And that is, by the way, what people... Okay, there's also people who cold read and stuff like that. But people who are highly intuitive, they often have the ability to... Um, step back enough that information shows up that they can read. Well, usually this goes ties in with the, if it takes energy or creates energy, right? If it takes energy, it's typically something that's dislocated. So one way of saying that is if you, like you say, have a story about it, the story of the thing happening plugs into an existing pattern of, let's say, anger and betrayal, right? So you're dislocating an event that really has nothing to do with that and put it in the socket of something that's old. And when that blows up, all the old stuff loads with the current stuff you are not only blowing up about this piece you're blowing up about this piece in the last 16 that have happened in an ideal world you do things that release it from the body without it having to pop mm -hmm. so i have for the last 30 let's see oh god 39 years is that right a long fucking time, let's put it this way. 
done nonlinear in some form or another every single day. And that's my way of uh, keeping mental hygiene, mental and emotional hygiene. So um, I don't start a day, and usually sometimes when we're traveling or so, I can only do a tiny little bit. Sometimes I can only do it in the shower or on a plane or something like that. But I do enough that anything that's stuck in my system washes out. And then that way, not that much pops up unbidden or at some surprise moment. And it doesn't have to be nonlinear, but even if you journal or dance or whatever, right, shower with the intention of releasing things, the, the ongoing hygiene of, of um, washing things out of the psyche is super important. The upset is only useful in, from, an, from a relational aspect. The upset is only useful when it happens in present time. So meaning, if you can have clean upset as things happen or within the vicinity of something happen, it might not be, you might be in a restaurant, something happens, you can't lose it in the restaurant, right? So you might have to wait till you're in the car. But if you can have clean upset in the car, meaning it's not linked to 15 other upsets, and allow yourself to have the emotionality right there, then it's good feedback. Yeah. Within reason, of course, right? We, we know that. Yeah, not breaking things or people or, you know, that kind of stuff. Independent or linked. Anytime you feel like it's linked to a lot of old stuff, you better take it somewhere else. So the way we're... Parsing this apart, this is actually, thank you that you're saying that, because I take that as a given, but it's not. There is rational discussion, which you can have any time. But she was talking about an upwelling of emotion. And an upwelling of emotion past a certain point is abusive, because it's no longer linked to the actual thing. But an actual conversation isn't. So if, if you have an upwelling of emotion, right, and you're like, ah, you know, and, and it, it would be nice if it could leave you, and the person you're having this with says, look, uh, no, come back to me when you've calmed down, <laughs> right, then you have to run the emotion by yourself and then come back and go, look, this isn't working for me. When you do this, this happens to me. I don't like it. I get upset. This is why I'm upset. I'm going to get upset again while I'm talking about it, but I'm going to let you know why that is, blah, 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 right? That you can do any time. But if you are, which sometimes it's better for the relationship, unless it gets abusive, right? But it's better for the relationship for the impact of the action to be seen, Right, So somebody hurts you, you start crying. That's preferable to somebody hurts you. You suck it up and then later, you know, it, it, it bleeds out. Because when they see you actually cry, then it's like, oh, shit. Right? But of course, when you cry and then immediately go to anger, which is the kind of displaced um, emotion secondary, right, emotion, that's no good. 
If you can keep on crying, well, that's pretty uncomfortable if somebody has to deal with the fact that they made you cry. If they make you cry and you get angry, then they can be self-righteous about it, so to speak, or block you. So it's a matter of sticking with the original emotion and not displacing the emotion. That's that, those are pretty fine distinctions uh, of of handling you know, emotional stuff. Not always. Well, that's where your practice comes in, right? That's where your practice comes in. Definitely, everybody can be devotional when it's all sunny and and wonderful out there, right? Um, and that is where ritual and bodily practice and all of that comes in because you have an anchor into doing things. I've recently started very specific uh, practices that I do daily that are not easy to do. I like doing them, but they're very they're not easy to do. And I have to mostly do them first thing in the morning. And so, you know, it's like, oh, God. Right? It's physically hard as well so I don't always feel compelled Um, and and the thing that makes me do it um, is and I don't feel devotional in the morning for the most part I feel like a cup of tea in the morning that's about it and and a little bit more sleep so the the discipline of the 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 practice is what gets me there I just have. I just step up, right, and then it will happen, or it won't. But it. But you have a better chance of it happening when you have the thing in place, regardless of what what yeah. you feel like. Uh, and then you do it, and then sometimes that really does it, but sometimes it doesn't. But that's not to say that it doesn't work you for the rest of the day, right? It doesn't work you consistently thereafter. But yeah, that's, that is one of the reasons why ritual is so good. Right? And we've done a number of things today that are very, very easily replicable in some form, right? where you can kind of just enter. It's the same when I start working, I light a candle, unless we're on the road and I can't travel with candles. Right? But if I'm home and the heavy-duty work happens, I light a candle and the act of that somehow sets me in the right mm-hmm. thing, you know, regardless if I want to do it or not. So I think that the way to look at it is that in a relational situation, you have to, uh, you can't conflate things. If you put things that don't belong together together, that's a conflation. So you're folding something in, right? So your devotional activity and your relational activity, for the most part, are different things. And boundary setting is something very different, right? So when you're in a relationship like you have been, right, and you have children and the the house together and all of those kind of things, there's uh, layers upon layers upon layers that you can focus on, right? The spiritual layer or the devotional layer being one of many layers. And so within the bigger consideration of the relationship, what you're looking at is the, the aspect of relationship that is built on common ground, 
you've heard me talk about this before, right? Where a large portion of intimate um, relationship, long-term relationship particularly, is built on commonality, on having um, not only interests and values in common, but also being able to communicate effectively and pulling on the same strings, so to speak, having the same goals, knowing the same things, wanting the same things, having agreements around communication, money, um, where it's going in your life, those kind of things. So that's the actual relational aspect of a relationship, where you are building as much common ground, and when you're working on those aspects, you're working specifically on sameness, and alignment, and resonance, uh, and assimilation. Those would be the words you would be using, right? So within that band of the relationship, you're going to have to compromise, right? The relational aspect in a long-term marriage or relationship or also business partnership, you will have to compromise. Um, if you can't compromise, you are landing in an area that's called irreconcilable difference, which is one of the ways that divorces are being declared, right? So for a cause of dissolution of marriage, irreconcilable difference, that's what it looks like legally, which means you can't agree and hence you can't go forward. So if you want to avoid that aspect in the relational field, you will have to come up with compromises that you can both live with. All right, that's, that's just that. Within that, there's compromises that are for the greater good. Your children, for instance, that's a greater good. And there's compromises that are a sellout. And what I mean by that is there's areas you compromise because it's easier to give in than to continue fighting. That's not an actual compromise. That's a sellout. That's selling yourself out. Right? You're compromising your integrity, not creating a compromise that you both are living with. That's the big differentiation there. Does that make sense? So if, if he says, this is a stupid example, right? Um, we're buying a blue car and you are saying uh, we're buying a white car, right? Because it's much better with the sun and whatever. And he's going, well, I don't want a white car. It's always dirty. And you're going, well, I don't want a black car or a dark blue car because it's, it picks up too much sun. Then maybe you can both live with a red one, right? And you go, well, red's not so bad. It doesn't pick up the dirt so much and it's not as hot. And he goes, well... I wanted a darker one, but red's not super light, right? So then, then that's an actual compromise. You now both, when you go to the car, feel it wasn't exactly what you wanted, but fuck it, right? It's fine. That, that's an actual relational compromise. If one of you gives in for the sake of love... And then every time you go to the car, you're like, fuck you. You always have to make your will known. You know, you're overriding me all the time. I hate this fucking car. I hate you. I hate your guts. I'm going to get back at you. That's not a compromise. In that case, you've sold yourself out. Right. 
So how boundary setting fits into this of what we're talking now is that you know when the moment comes where you are selling yourself out and you don't do that. That's a boundary. Right? When you can't live with a yes, you must say no. If you can live with the no, uh, when you can live with the yes, but you wanted you know, something else, that's a different story. So boundary setting has to occur to protect yourself from harm and selling out. And it has to occur so that you protect the relationship from eroding. Because it will erode when you've given in too many times. Right? Other things happen on the back end. So that's that. Devotion is something entirely different within a functioning relationship. And there's two aspects to that, one of which is the sexual component of the relationship, which you've heard me talk about this, right? While the relationship is formed by sameness, the sexual aspect, the, the sexual spark or attraction is built by opposition, which is why a lot of times people who actually don't get along have great sex, either through fighting and makeup sex or they're because they're so different that they always have that sexual spark. In a normal functioning relationship, most people after a while have to recreate the opposition in order to have the spark because it, as the sameness occurs, the spark goes. Right? So that's, that's an aspect of long-term relationship that has usually, um, you have to have some skills, you have to acquire the skills to create the polar opposites and play in that domain with hotness. Right? So devotion falls into the category of, into a, into a third category, so to speak, so relationship, you have the sexual aspect, and then you have the devotional aspect. And the way I look at the devotional aspect, this is my, these are my definitions, right? They're not, the, the other people see this differently. Um, but the devotional aspect is the aspect where you have something greater than yourself, the divine, the universe, uh, love, however you want to say that, that orients the entirety of the relationship. And like I was saying earlier, one of the, re one of the areas that people mostly understand to be greater than themselves is the good of their dependent children. Right? Because when you have an infant and you are super tired and you're still hurting from birth and the baby needs food in the middle of the night, very few women go, oh, fuck it. And I'll just close the door and sleep for another six hours. And I'll feed the kid later. There's people like that. But for the most part, for the greater good of your you know, dependent baby, you'll haul your ass out of bed regardless of how tired and achy you are. And you do what needs to be done. And that's an act of devotion. But it's not an act of devotion that um, undermines your integrity. Right? It's a, it, it has a very different flavor to it. Because, yeah, there's people who are just martyrs. But for the most part, when you are driven by your devotion, you are not compromised in your integrity because it goes way beyond that area right 
It's not, you're not devoted to your man, hence you give him a white car, right? That, that's, a, that's a bad use of, or that's an override or bypass of something spiritual. You might be devoted to God in your man to the point that you let certain things slide while he's figuring them out, for instance. So, for instance, I'll give you an example. My husband, at some point, um, a f- quite a few years back by now, um, had uh, a an, an, an health issue. And within dealing with that health issue, a lot of the things that I expected from him couldn't be expected, as that is the case, right? I mean, if somebody can't walk, you can't make them run a marathon with you. And so with a health issue, it's fairly clear because you can say, oh, well, he can't do that right now. But in his case, very much like you were saying with the chronic pain, in his case, it wasn't, a f- you know, you couldn't see it. It wasn't one thing. It was a set of circumstances that made it that he couldn't attend to certain things. And so relationally speaking, that sucks. Um, but the, the devotional aspect was such that even though it was inconvenient, and that's putting it very mildly, my orientation towards the greater good of him, of the relationship and of life, of my life in general, made it that that was attended to with as much grace and expansion as I could, right? Everybody has limits and that. But that's a devotional act, not an act of bypassing or martyrdom. But if you're with somebody who is a great guy but is consistently not capable of delivering for whatever reasons, right? then you have to keep look at the other aspects involved. You can't just look at, well, let me just be devoted to him and it will be okay. Because that's not, that's not the use of devotion. The use of devotion is to see God in your partner. And sometimes when you see God in your partner, you actually get a bit harsher and not nicer because you wouldn't let God get away with certain shit. Right? You just wouldn't. You, for, for, the, for the greater benefit of your partner, of your children, of yourself, of his life, you, there are certain things you actually wouldn't tolerate. And so it's not a looking away and, and being all spiritual about it and just loving what is. It's about seeing it in a context that's bigger than your needs and wants and his needs and wants. And then from there making decisions. And yeah, it could be that you go, wow, there's such goodness and sweetness and there's so much gunk on top. So I'm going to... Div- I'm gonna let the gunk slide for a moment. I'm going to attend to that which is the best in him and see if more of that can come out. But if it doesn't, then you need to set a boundary. Well, nicer doesn't mean that you are mean or a bitch. It just means that you have a certain demand on the situation, including yourself, kind of a rigor. Right, that where you don't let things slack, because nothing but love will do, right? And that which is not love has to go. 
And that often produces kind of an interesting sensation in your own body where shortcuts are no longer acceptable. And you get very ruthless with yourself and the people around you, not in a nasty way, but in a way where it's like, I'm not doing that. And that, of course, the godly thing to do, so to speak, is that you only demand that which fits the person's um, makeup, right? And that is also, once again, all of these things, if you're a decent parent, can be illustrated on how you deal with a child. Because when your four-year-old says, Mommy, where do babies come from? The answer is very different than when you're a 17-year-old boy uh, on the way out the door to some uh, summer vacation with his entire co-ed school, right, asked uh, how babies are made. That's a, you know, that's a very different conversation. And so the, the demand has to be um, tailored to the person you make the demand on. It's not a blanket demand. No. It's a very, very specifically surgical, so to speak, demand based on what that person needs. And for that, of course, you need to be able to feel. That's the key there. One of the ways you can look at it is if the things you do uh, potentiate each other or cancel each other out. And do you want the canceling out effect or do you want the potentiating effect? And that's a personal decision moment by moment. So, for instance, in the last few days uh, before we started teaching, Um, You know, Steve does an enormous amount of sitting practice, as anybody who's followed him over the summer, right? He's done four hours a day over the summer. Now he's back down to an hour and a half or so. And he does very specific practices within the sitting practice. So the last few days before we started teaching, when we both arrived, I'd sit with him for the entire hour, which I'm very capable of doing. And sitting, in my case, means I don't move at all. Um, you know, I put this thing over my head and I just, and I can easily sit for an hour. Sometimes it's easier to not move than others. Right? I, I won't lie there, but I can do it. And the first day I did it, it felt amazing. Like just like, you know, wipe the jet lag and my, all my stuff clean. The second day I did it, half an hour in, I was fucking done. And then the thing that that I do is I go, okay, I could stop now. And then I can usually see when I say I could stop now if my agitation was goes away because it, I really didn't want to stop, but I, I was it was just a bit too much. Because when I say, okay, I can stop now, and it goes down, then I know that I really shouldn't stop. But if I say, okay, I'm going to stop now, and then my body really wants to move, then I know that I've exceeded my sitting entirely still thing. And I, what I did in that moment, then I went on all fours right then and there and started doing nonlinear. And 
I did exactly as much nonlinear as I did sitting, and then I felt um, really, really, really energized. So those are kind of some distinctions. Now, on some days, I don't want to be energized because I have jet lag or I need to calm down. Then I might sit longer till my mind settles. On some days, I can't sit at all. It just drains me too much. Or I go in my head or, you know, I mean, I can do endless things when I'm sitting still. It's, it, it's not funny sometimes. Right? So, so you, once you have established practices and you can feel your body, you can essentially prescribe the things that you need to do for the potentiating or the canceling out. And I, for the most part, don't like canceling out, right? Because why even bother? Right. So if I do half an hour of nonlinear and then half an hour of meditation and if it feels exactly like it did before I started, then I feel, you know, <laughs> you know. So, but on some days that is the way to go because that's what my body requires. So, how, so that said, how would you know? Well, I'd, I'd probably, if you tend towards going, you know, I would probably do more movement than sitting. Steve's got a three-time rule. When you sit that much, you, you have a three-time rule, right? He goes, um, fuck it. And he goes, okay, well, you know, I'll, I'll get up if that happens again. Then it goes away, and then it pops back up. And so on the third time of it happening, he'll get, he will get up. He's super disciplined. Yes, it, it would be, but then that's still valid because you clearly don't have the capacity yet. And otherwise, you'd be forcing yourself, right? I mean, there's something to be said about practicing a little bit longer than you want to. But there's also something to be said about not fucking up your nervous system. And that's always the, you know, I know lots of people who've done lots of practices and their nervous systems are shot, uh, shot. So you have to always look at that trade-off of, is it really the thing to do? For some people, they're just lazy, but that can't be helped, right? That's something you have to grow out of. No amount of discipline is going to make a difference. But for most of us, if that's what you want to do, then that's what you should do till you no longer want to do that. Yeah, well, that's how you gain sovereignty, right? One of the big, big, big things that I'm after is freedom, personal freedom, right? Sovereign from uh, external force, society, you know, whatever, right? And so how do you get sovereignty? Well, you figure that shit out yourself. And you can actually trust yourself. And you don't have anybody else tell you anything unless you want them to. Right? And, and you don't rely on other people to um, manage your spiritual practice. They can give you things that you don't know about, but it's your call. <laughs> 